Welcome back to the Stanford Psychology Podcast. My name is Kate, and for this week's episode, I had the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Jillian Sandstrom. Jillian is a senior lecturer in the psychology of kindness at the University of Sussex and the director of the Center for Research on Kindness. While pursuing her master's degree in psychology at Ryerson University in Canada, Jillian developed what she refers to as a smile-and-wave relationship with a woman who worked at a hot dog stand. And even though the two of them never even talked to each other, Jillian noticed that simply having that woman be there every day, just smiling and waving, seemed to make her days better. It was this observation that initially led Jillian to study the roles that casual interactions with acquaintances and even complete strangers can play in our lives. In this week's episode, Jillian told me all about her research examining the reasons why many of us are often so hesitant to talk to strangers, how our fears of talking to strangers actually map onto reality, and the surprising benefits that can actually come from fleeting interactions with people we may never see again. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Hi, Jillian. Thanks for being here. Thanks for inviting me. So you shared this really interesting paper with me, um, and it is a meta-analysis or a mini meta-analysis to be exact, and it's titled, Why Do People Avoid Talking to Strangers? A mini meta-analysis of predicted fears and actual experiences talking to a stranger. So to start things off, would you like to just tell us a little bit about this paper? How about I give you a little behind the scenes of how this happened? <laughs> um, I was invited to submit a paper to this special issue of self and identity. And I thought, okay, um, first of all, cool. <laughs> um, and, you know, what, what am I going to, you know, what do I have that I could write about? And I had all these little, for the most part, sort of small studies that I'd run over the years that they're all kind of looking at similar questions, but didn't feel like they really stood on their own. And I thought, oh, this would be a really great opportunity to sort of try and pull them all together um, and, and see what's going on across studies. So even though each of them is small, putting them all together can, can still help us learn a lot. Um, so it was obviously a lot of work um, to sort of just to get the data sets in the format where I could kind of do analyses across them. Um, but I feel like I, I learned a lot from being able to look at them as a set of studies. So it was, it was really rewarding and interesting to do. And I felt really good to be able to use all this, all this data that I, that had sort of been sitting there waiting for me. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so I, ha- uh, the mini, mini meta-analysis is, um, pulling in seven different studies that I'd run over the course of a few years. Um, one of them was just a vignette, st- a vignette study um, where people sort of imagined talking to a stranger and sort of predicted how they thought things were going to go. Um, a few of them were uh, lab studies where I, I, everything but that first one, the vignette one, involved actually talking to strangers. Um, and uh, some of them were field studies where people had to actually go up to a random person and start talking to them. And some of them were fields uh, lab studies where we provided uh, a confederate for people to talk to. Um, but there was, you know, kind of this range of, of methods that were involved in the study. 
studies. And so uh, what are some of the key findings from, from these studies that now that you've looked at them all together, right? So in the title, you mentioned uh, the, the people avoiding talking to strangers and uh, fears and the actual experiences. So maybe you could say a little bit about just what are those fears and what exactly is it that people are so afraid of? Well, the answer to the last part is everything. <laughs> uh, <laughs> lots of things. Um, so I started looking I mean, I, when I started studying talking to strangers in general, um, I started by looking at the benefits that people get. So, you know, before doing this work and this study, you know, I, I already knew that people are in a better mood and feel more connected when they talk to strangers. So that's from my own work and then work by people like Nick Epley and Juliana Schroeder and uh, Gul Gunaydin has done a study in Turkey, which found similar things. Um, you know, so the benefits we kind of already know. Um, but if if we get these benefits, you know, the next question for me is, well, why are we not talking to people then? Because, you know, it's definitely not the norm that people just go up and talk to everybody. A lot of people are really, really nervous about talking to strangers. So what exactly are people nervous about? I've been wondering that for a long time. Um, so the first thing I did to try and answer that question was I had this opportunity to run some how to talk to strangers workshops. Um, and so that data has made it into this mini meta-analysis. It was also part of an earlier paper on the liking gap. Um, but I would just, I ran these workshops and people would talk to a stranger during the workshop. Um, but of course, you know, being a, a good social scientist, I made them answer questions. Um, I had them do pre-post surveys. Um, and when I started doing it, I just asked people open-ended questions about what their hopes were and what their fears were about having this, you know, they knew they'd be talking to someone in a couple minutes. What were they worried about and what did they hope would happen? Um, and people told me just countless things. <laughs> so then so then the trick became, okay, how do I categorize this? I don't want to ask people about, you know, 64 different fears that they have, um, you know, so are there some patterns to it? Um, and, and so in this mini meta-analysis, we ended up sort of consolidating or thinking about sort of six different categories of fear. So three of them are sort of from your perspective, the person who's, I guess, starting the conversation or, you know, not necessarily from your perspective and three of them are sort of from the, your partner's perspective. Um, so people worry about whether or not they're going to enjoy the conversation. They worry about whether or not they're going to like their partner uh, and they worry about their ability. Like, are they going to know what to say? I, th I think, I, and then they worry about the same things from their partner's perspective. So will their partner enjoy it? Will their partner like them? And, you know, does their partner have the have conversational ability? And I think honestly that people's biggest fear, um, I'm sort of stepping a little bit beyond the data now, but I think people's biggest fear is just the dreaded awkward silence, you know, that we're going to start a conversation, neither person is going to know what to say, and we're just going to have that moment that every single one of us has experienced mm -hmm. at some point where we're like, Oh God, what do we do now? Um, and if you think about it, it's not a big deal, is it? I mean, it's not fun. It's not pleasant. Nobody likes that moment, but it's not, it's not the end of the world and you get past it and it's okay. But um, so those, those are the sort of six categories of fears that we've been looking at. Um, and so what we found in this study in the, in the mini meta analysis is um, as I've been finding in, every study that I've run that um, people are fairly worried before having a conversation. It's not like they're at ceiling or anything. Um, they're not like generally terrified about what's going to happen, 
but uh, their fears are vastly overblown compared to the reality of actually talking to someone. So in all of these studies, after people have actually had a conversation with a stranger and they report back, uh, they have to kind of admit that it went better than they expected and all those things that they worried about didn't really happen. And in the mini meta-analysis, um, you know, we report the effect size, the sort of meta-analyzed effect size of the difference between what people thought was going to happen and what actually did happen. And these are giant differences. <laughs> um, so even though people aren't dreading the conversation, they're just really, really wrong about how things are going to go. Mm -hmm. That is so interesting. And so where do you think, I, I don't know if this may be going uh, a little bit beyond the data in your case or, or not, I'm not sure, but where do you think those fears and misconceptions come from, right? Because you just mentioned that so most conversations that people have with strangers are just fine. And then uh, I also really liked what you said about the awkward part, right? The awkward silence that, yeah, sure, it happens and maybe not none of us like it very much. But I, I like I imagine if you uh, went out and just asked people, well, in the grand scheme of things, like how bad is it to like how much would it ruin your day to have like an awkward moment of silence? And people would say, well, it's really no big deal, right? And then still people have such strong misconceptions about what would actually happen if they were to talk to a stranger. So where, how do you think we end up here? How, how do we end up with these beliefs? Really good question. I don't have an answer for that yet. And I don't, I don't think anybody does. I mean, I think, mm -hmm. you know, it, it matters a lot to us as humans to be accepted and included, you know, those feelings of belonging are really important. Um, and so presumably it's coming from that a little bit, just this, you know, fear that people are just not going to like us and not going to accept us. Um, but yeah, it's a really puzzling thing because there's, there's been, you know, quite a few studies, you know, I, I know Tom Gilovich was on the podcast recently. Um, so he's done some work with his collaborators and um, Ashley Willens has done some work and they, they both find that, you know, people generally sort of are more negative about their social lives and their social networks um, than, than they should be, you know? So there's sort of, even though there's, you know, lots of data in social psychology about how people think they're better than average, there's mm -hmm. several studies now showing that people think they're worse than average in terms of these social skills. Um, so I think we don't quite know, you know, what's going on yet. I mean, it people have said to me, well, maybe it just takes one negative interaction with a stranger and, you know, bad, stronger than good, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I don't know how often people have a really like truly bad interaction with a stranger, mm -hmm. you know, like maybe sometimes there's certainly some situations, you know, where, you know, something somebody could yell at you or argue with you or but people don't generally tend to do that sort of thing with strangers. You know, we've, um, you know, as Liz Dunn wrote in her paper, you know, we put our best face forward with people we don't know as well. So, so generally those kind of negative things probably happen less with strangers and acquaintances than they would with people we're, we're really close to. Um, so it's definitely possible that people have had negative encounters or maybe they've just heard or you know in in the media you know here i mean we hear all the horror stories about things that can happen um so you know maybe it's maybe we just think that it happens more often than it does um and i think we don't because we many of us don't actually talk to strangers that often we don't 
learn from our positive experiences. Um, so I think, you, you know, um, that if you have one positive conversation, oh, and this is this, I'm sort of jumping ahead, I guess, to one thing we found in the mini meta analysis that, you know, if people have a pleasant conversation and then they're asked to predict how the next conversation is going to go, um, their, their fears kind of bounce up, even though they said, you know, I was really worried. I had this nice conversation. It was way better than I thought. If you say what's going to happen to the next conversation, people say, Ooh, I don't know. And I think what happens is we don't, we somehow are not learning or we're not generalizing properly. Um, so we think, you know, I just talked to Kate and we had a nice chat. Um, but you know, John, I've never met John before. He, who knows what he's going to be like, you know, why would I expect my conversation with him to, to go well? Um, so I think, you know, we need to sort of figure out a way to see the pattern, which is that these conversations generally go well, but because we don't do it often enough, I think we're not seeing that pattern and not learning mm. from it. That's so interesting. Thank you so much for that thoughtful uh, answer. Yeah, it's re really quite a puzzle, isn't it? Mm. Um, so something else you mentioned just now is that we don't talk to strangers that often, maybe, and so we don't get enough of this, like uh, enough of a uh, of an evidence base to actually form accurate beliefs. But this makes me wonder also about the individual differences in those types of fears and uh, uh, sort of misconceptions about talking to strangers, because I imagine that people's attitudes might vary a lot based on personality or culture or the context they're in, maybe even just like who the stranger is. And some people actually talk to dozens of strangers every day just as part of their job, right? And others don't. So there seems to be a lot of variation. Um, and do you find that uh, the fears or that the gap in how uh, people think their conversation would go and how it actually goes varies along these lines? Or uh, is it just that we're all uh, bad at predicting how the conversations would go regardless of what we do in our lives and regardless how many strangers we talk to on the day-to-day -day basis. Do you have any thoughts on this? Well, in the mini meta-analysis, we did look at a bunch of different individual differences. And what I can tell you is that there's definitely a lot of correlations between the fears that people have and their personality. So people who... Um, are shyer or people who report higher interaction anxiety, um, which is something I've been looking at sort of more often than I've been looking at extroversion. It's very strongly correlated with extroversion, but feels a little bit more specific to the exact sort of facet of extroversion that I'm interested in. Um, so people who score higher in uh, interaction anxiety and say that they're more shy um, also tend to report more fears. Um, people who have higher social self-esteem um, and social curiosity tend to report lower fears. Um, but interestingly, social curiosity, you know, is something that people can have even if they're really anxious about talking to other people. They, they can still be really interested in people just afraid to, to talk to them. So those, I, I, you know, I find that kind of fascinating that those are two sort of independent things. Um, definitely find that people who are less worried about talking to strangers tend to be happier mm. um, and they tend to be more extroverted, which wouldn't surprise you and lower in neuroticism, which also wouldn't surprise you um, and higher in openness. Um, so kind of the, the sort of correlations that you would expect. Um, but we tend to find that those correlations are a lot stronger on the prediction side 
than they are on the experience side. So generally people, regardless of their individual differences, tend to enjoy talking to strangers and enjoy it more than they predict. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's more on the prediction side that the individual differences seem to come into play. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so a few times now you mentioned uh, the positive experiences that people have when talking to strangers and potentially the uh, bigger outcomes for or implications for well-being and how we feel in our everyday lives. And I wonder if you could just um, tell us a little bit more about that, because I imagine something uh, that some of our listeners might be wondering about at this point as well. So what if people don't talk to strangers? Like, why does it matter so much? So I wonder if you could just yeah say a few words about what's at stake here and what are the implications of talking or not talking to strangers, both at the individual level and maybe even at the societal level? Yeah, so I, th- I think that there's benefits to you, the one who's hopefully initiating the conversation, uh, for the person that you're talking to, and like you said, to society more broadly. Um, so um, as I mentioned earlier, that you know, there's been a few studies now showing that people report being in a better mood after talking to a stranger, and they report feeling a greater sense of connection, which is really important in this era where there's so much, you know, we know that loneliness is an increasing problem. So social connection is is really important and on people's minds. Um, and especially now during the pandemic, when we've done all this social distancing and, you know, feeling sort of extra nervous about other people, um, you know, it's, it's something that that's even more important maybe. Um, but the benefits aren't just for you. You know, when you talk to someone, that person is in a better mood and feels more connection as well. Um, and so that's something that I think about when I try to work up the nerve to talk to strangers um, because I'm very much an introvert, um, even though I'm now sort of obsessed with talking to strangers, which is kind of an interesting, you know, seems like a contradiction, but there you have it. Um, So, you know, as an introvert, sort of my worst nightmare is going into a giant noisy room full of people um, when I don't know anybody. Um, And so what I will do to sort of work up the nerve and talk to people, um, you know, I could think, okay, Jillian, I know you're going to enjoy it more than you think you're going to, which is definitely true, but that's not how I do it. What I do is I I pick someone who looks like they also have no one to talk to. Mm -hmm. And I think, okay, Jillian, you can make a difference to that person by going up and talking to them. Um, And so that, that's how I sort of build up the nerve to do it is think about how it can be a pro-social act. And I, I hope that many of us can, can think of a time where an interaction with a stranger has really made a difference to our day. I know that I, you know, during the pandemic, I, I'm lucky I have a park across the street from me. And so I go for a walk pretty much every day. Um, and when I walk out of my office after sitting in front of the screen all day, um, you know, it takes a bit for the brain to stop turning. Um, but by the end of the walk, I feel so much better. Um, but I remember one day I was in a, just a rotten mood and, you know, I was ba- almost crying on my walk that day. I don't even remember why. So just one of those human mm-hmm. things, you know? Um, and the thing that sort of broke me out of the negative voice in my, the, you know, the negative cycle in my head mm-hmm. was some random person who just happened to smile at me as she walked past. And I thought, you know, it's, it's going to be okay. Um, so, you know, that just reminded me, um, 
that I think, you know, these little things can really make a difference to people. And and I hope that sometimes it's me making that difference to someone else, because I know people have been that person for me. Um, So, so I, you know, it benefits you, it benefits the person you're talking to. um, But also just, I don't know, I I say this a lot. I've had like hundreds of conversations with strangers now, and some of them are really exciting or fun or interesting. Um, You know, I, I got, uh, very helpful. Uh, someone gave me a ride once that saved me an hour's worth of time late at night, which was great. I was with my husband. That might sound really scary, like sketchy to take a ride from a stranger, but I haven't done that a lot, but you know, I did that once. Um, I got some vegetables from someone's allotment garden. Um, I've joined a book club that a complete stranger invited me to join, you know, so I've had some really interesting and fruitful Mm -hmm. conversations with strangers. Um, but a lot of times they're just sort of average. Um, and I think that those conversations matter too. And I think the takeaway for me, like what, what, what I feel about it, why I feel strongly about continuing to talk to strangers is that it makes me feel like I can talk to pretty much anybody and have a decent mm. conversation. And so that makes me feel like I can trust other people and people are generally good. And it makes me feel just more positive about the world mm-hmm. that I live in a little more safe mm-hmm. and trusting and that kind of thing. So uh, thanks so much again for painting such a beautiful and positive and inspiring picture of uh, what talking to strangers uh, can look like and how it can be uplifting and re- really make our lives uh, maybe a little bit better in a lot of ways. So something that I'm wondering about now is how do we get people to actually realize that talking to strangers is often a good thing? And as you're finding also nowhere near as awkward and unpleasant uh, as they might think, right? So aside from what we're doing now, which is telling everybody about this work, um, do you think there's a a solution there or something that we can do? Well, I mean, what I've tried to do, and we talked a little bit about some of this in the mini meta-analysis, is the reason I've been focused on looking at fears is that I thought, okay, if I understand what people are worried about, then maybe I can come up with an intervention that addresses those fears. And and that might result in people being more willing to have conversations. Um, That hasn't worked out so well (laughs) um, so far. Um, So one thing I get asked a lot is from journalists, for instance, is, you know, okay, Jillian, you're telling us that talking to strangers is great. And you're making it sound really exciting. Can you give us some tips? How do we do it? You know, what, what do we need to do? Um, and the fact is, you know, we tips don't seem to be as helpful as you might hope. Um, and I think, you know, that might be because if you give someone a tip, then they might spend the conversation stuck inside their own head thinking about the tip. Okay, I need to say this. I need to make sure I don't say that. And I think the more time you spend in your own head um, thinking about those kind of things and listening to that voice that's saying, what is my partner thinking? Do they like me? You know, or do they, they, you know, what, you know, we get stuck in that listening to that negative voice. Um, And I think what we need to be able to do, which is really hard, is just sort of turn down the volume on that voice and just really be connected and paying attention to the person we're talking to and just go with the flow. So I think possibly the reason that tips are not working is because it gets us into that, into our own heads instead of getting us out of our heads, which I think is what we need to do. Um, But anyway, we tested um, 
we had two studies in the mini meta-analysis that um, provided people with tips. Um, and, and it did make a small difference. So people who got tips um, thought that they would enjoy the conversation more and that their partner would enjoy the conversation more, um, but it didn't affect the other categories of fear. So it didn't affect how much they thought they would like their partner, how much they thought their partner would like them. And it didn't affect how much they thought um, the, the, the fears about ability, um, which I think are the biggest ones, you know, the, the worry about not knowing what to say and having those awkward silences. Um, so it affected a couple of the fears beforehand, but not, the majority of them, and it made no difference in terms of how people's experiences actually went. Um, so that was a little disappointing, you know. I, I, I really wanted to fix things for people and, and make it easier. Um, the other um, intervention we tested is sort of unrelated to tips, um, and so we thought, you know, in in some of these studies that were part of the the meta analysis, people had a conversation. And then, you know, so they had a pleasant conversation. You think that might help people learn that the next conversation is going to be good. I mentioned this a little earlier. Mm -hmm. um, and so people did report, you know, people's fears were pretty high before the conversation and they have a little chat. And then afterwards they said, you know, no, none of those things actually happened. Mm -hmm. But in the couple of studies we had where people could predict what would happen if they spoke to another person those fears bounced up, um, not as high as they had been before the, the pleasant conversation, but not as low as they should have been based on how well that conversation went. Um, and so, yeah, in, in a couple of studies that we ran, um, that's what we found. Um, the only study that was an exception uh, was a study that involved multiple pleasant conversations. Yeah, so it sounds like people really need to accumulate the evidence in order to really believe that talking to strangers can actually be a pleasant experience and not so awkward, right? So, and you just mentioned this uh, study in which you actually got people to have multiple conversations with the stranger and uh, by doing that, uh, getting them to be less pessimistic about uh, how likely they are to actually be rejected and experience that awkwardness. Um, yeah, so could you just give us uh, a flavor of what that study was like and what you did there and what you found, although I'm giving away the ending maybe a little bit here. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. We do that all the time in the abstract, don't we? <laughs> Remember when I wrote my first academic paper, I'm like, what do you mean we tell everybody the ending? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so sort of prompted by these studies that I'd run where people's, you know, just having one pleasant conversation didn't seem to help people learn. Um, I thought, okay, how can I fix this problem? And the only thing that uh, I could think of was to get people to have lots of conversations, you know, and I, I trusted my findings. I trusted that people would generally have positive conversations and that they just needed to have that experience of doing it um, in close succession, you know, mm -hmm. and because like I said earlier, I think we don't get enough practice doing it. So then we don't notice that actually generally it goes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so um, yeah, I used an app that, that already existed um, to set up a scavenger hunt game where people had these different missions that they had to mm -hmm. do every day. So every, every day they had six missions to choose from you know, give people a little autonomy over what exactly they were going to do. Um, but it was things like 
find someone who's wearing a hat or find someone who's drinking a coffee. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't really care about the descriptions. I just wanted it to be sort of fun and something that would be easy for people to find. Um, And so people in the experimental group were told to find a person matching the description and go up to them and start a conversation. Uh, And then there were people in a control group where they were supposed to find someone matching the description, but just observe the person Mm -hmm. rather than have a conversation. Um, so yeah, I came up with this idea and I, I um, applied for a, a grant to study it, a small grant. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm going to need to pay a programmer to like develop an app so I can test this thing. And then, you know, I, I think because I'm sort of not quite that so that media technology native generation. And then I, luckily I had this moment where I thought, uh, Jillian, you're being dumb. Surely there's an app for that. <laughs> you know, surely this app already exists. And uh, yeah, I found this great app called Goose Chase. Um, and yeah, it was it was actually really easy to sort of you know put in my missions and um, and and get my participants to access it to to play this game. Um, so yeah, what we did is we had people. Um, pick at least one mission per day. Um, so have one conversation per day for, for a whole week, um, five days. Um, and we found that people um, basically were less worried about rejection and felt more confident in their ability to sort of start, maintain, and end conversations as the week went on. And it did sort of gradually change um, as you'd expect, given the past um, findings that I, I told you about where you know a single conversation maybe helps, but it doesn't stick. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seemed like you needed to have this sort of repeated practice um, mm-hmm. in order to have those changes stick. It really did change gradually over time. Having said that, people are still you know, more worried than the reality <laughs> suggests they should be. So they still think rejection is going to happen more than it actually does. And they still think that they're not going to be as competent as they actually report being. Um, but the gap does get smaller over time. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is such a fascinating study. It's, I think the idea of turning a study into a scavenger hunt and actually getting people to find strangers that match a description and talk to them is just so creative and fun. And it sounds like your participants hopefully also had fun uh, doing that and also got something out of it. Um, So something I'm curious about is, do you have a sense of how lasting those changes are? So is it that like while they're doing the scavenger hunt and like actually engaging with strangers out on the street, uh, they maybe have less negative perceptions of their conversational ability and uh, less sort of skewed perceptions of how likely they are to get rejected. But then as soon as the scavenger hunt is over, does it sort of go back to uh, what it used used to be or, or is there a sense that uh, it lasts for at least some time after? Well, we did do a follow-up about a week after the scavenger hunt Mm -hmm. ended um, and the changes did seem to stick. So people Mm -hmm. were still less worried than they had been before doing the scavenger hunt and they were still feeling more confident than they had at the beginning. Um, We also found that um, 
I'm terrible remembering numbers, but I think it was about somewhere between 15 and 20% of people had exchanged contact information mm. with someone that they met during the study. Um, and, and about the same, a little less, maybe somewhere between 10 and 15% um, had actually been in touch with someone that they'd met during the study. Now, you know, m- most of our participants were university students and we're actually probably really happy to be able to meet people on campus. Mm. You know, we had open-ended comments and there were students saying, you know, hey, I'm an international student. And it was so great to have this opportunity to meet people. Um, and thank you for doing your study. Um, so I think, you know, that might be a slightly special population. I know in my experience of talking to strangers in the real world, <laughs> not that the <laughs> university campus is in a real world, but, you know, um, I I rarely exchange names, let alone contact mm-hmm. information. I mean, sometimes I told you I'm a member of a book club because some stranger invited me. So, you know, it does happen, but not not as often as it did in the study. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so that I think that's another sign that mm-hmm. that maybe the results kind of stick. The fact that people had sort of been in touch with people and and I'm hopeful, you know, yes, bad is stronger than good. If you had a really negative interaction with a stranger, that's going to stick with you. But I hope that if you had a really positive interaction and maybe made a new friend because you were brave enough to talk to a stranger, that that might stick mm-hmm. with you, too. And it might make you more brave and more willing to, to try it again, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Wow, there are just so many questions I want to ask you. Um, (laughs) um, But I guess one quick question uh, uh, that I want to ask you is, did you try the scavenger hunt yourself? I I did not. Uh, I I had my research assistants try it out, though, and they helped me uh, come up with the list of Mm -hmm. missions, you know, some things Mm -hmm. that they thought would be fun and and, um, doable on a campus. Mm -hmm. The, The opening line that I find most fun um, that I use a lot when I talk to strangers is what you doing. <laughs> and so usually I'm just like sort of observing something and asking people, you know, tapping into my curiosity and asking people who are doing like, why are you doing that? Um, so just the other day I saw a man when I was out for a walk and he had this little knife and he'd sliced off the tiniest little sliver of a piece of wood. You know, there was like a, a stump. <laughs> um, and I said, what you doing? <laughs> um, and, and he was uh, trying to see how dry it was. He was going to take it home and do some wood turning with it. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, I saw someone taking photographs once and I said, you know, what you doing? And uh, <laughs> he was telling me how he would, he had gotten into photography and he was trying out some different techniques. And, and one time I saw this lady, who was looking very intently at this bush. And I was like, what you doing? And she's like, see this, this is, oh, I'm, I can't remember the word, but it had something to do with um, bugs. And they create this little, you know, thing on the bottom of a leaf, like a c- cocoon almost, mm. not that, but anyway. So I've learned lots of things from just asking people what you doing. Um, so that's not really a type of person, but it's just you know, seeing people who are out in the world doing something and and using that as an excuse to start a conversation. Mm -hmm. Wow. I'm definitely feeling inspired to use that line now. I don't think I've ever, uh, yeah, I don't think I've ever approached a stranger asking them what they were doing, but it sounds like. I I think I'm always conscious of like trying to do it in a fun way. Like I just did like, not like, what are you doing? You you know, especially with the, the guy the other day with the knife and the piece of wood, I was like, okay, I don't want him to think that I'm you know, getting him in trouble or that he has anything to worry about from me, but, you know, I want him to 
you know, just see that yeah. I'm curious and, and just want to start a chat. So, yeah, well, it sounds like you're doing a great job of actually doing it in a friendly way. So maybe, maybe I'll give it a try and hopefully, hopefully I'll be able to convey that friendly. Let me know uh, how it goes. Attitude. Oh, I will. Um, so something else I just can't not ask you about is something that you sort of alluded to when talking about the fact that this scavenger hunt was done on a college campus, right, or a university campus. And so my question is about the cultural considerations that are relevant here. And I mean, both at the micro level, like college campus versus quote unquote real world, uh, as well as the macro level. So the level of uh, uh, different cities, states, countries, right? Because um, you could imagine that maybe uh, sometimes it's not so much that the possibility of having a bad experience is perceived to outweigh the possibility of having a good experience when talking to strangers. Um, but it's just that the cultural context does not necessarily support talking to strangers as much. And so uh, it's just not that something that people do. And so it might not even cross a person's mind to talk to a stranger. And mm -hmm. when it does um, cross that person's mind, then maybe um, the reasons that they think they might be rejected or disliked by their conversation partner if they engage them in a conversation uh, is not so much because they're uh, lacking, there's some personal fail failing and they're lacking conversational skills or just like are unlikable, but because they're violating a cultural norm, right? It's just not something that people do. Um, so yeah, do you have any thoughts on that, on how talking to strangers actually plays out across cultures? Yeah, that's a huge question. Um, I have lots of thoughts. Um, I did try a study once um, where I tried to shift people's perceptions about the norms um, in the hopes that, you know, if people thought it was more normal to talk to strangers, that they might mm -hmm. be more willing to do it. But it was really hard to convince people that the norm was actually more positive than it is. Um, so I think people, you know, we we did a little manipulation where we said, actually, you know, it's totally normal to do this. And people are like, no. <laughs> um, so so the study was a failure. And, and I like to say that because I especially for students who are listening, you know, it's not like every study works out. So it's important to tell those stories. Um, so I, you know, that doesn't mean that shift, you know, if we could shift norms, you know, probably would have a positive effect, but unfortunately we couldn't figure out a strong enough way to, to make that happen in that study. Um, I, I definitely think norms is a huge part of the problem, part of the reason why people don't talk. And I think, you know, personally, when I speak to people, um, you know, I did my PhD at UBC and um, University of British Columbia in Canada. Um, and the university campus is sort of out on the edge of a peninsula. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I catch the bus at the end of the day to go home, I knew that everybody who was on that bus had started at UBC because there was no other stop. Like that was the farthest you could go. Um, and so that was, that made it really easy as a conversation starter, right? Like what, you know, what have you been doing on campus today? Because I knew for sure that they had been on campus. Um, and I started to, you know, when I'd have these conversations with people, they start off a little bit iffy, you know, and I started imagining this is what I think is going on in people's heads. I think I have to, people first think, do I know you? <laughs> and then they're like, uh Oh, I don't know you. <laughs> um, although I've had some really interesting conversations with people who 
thought that they knew me. And then we eventually figure out, no, <laughs> no, you didn't know me. And by then it's too late because we're having a nice chat. But um, anyway, I think people on the bus are like, do I, do you know, do I know you? No. And then they're like, uh-oh, what do you want? <laughs> like what is happening here? Um, and I think that that feeling is coming from the norm. Like it is not normal to get on the bus and talk to a complete stranger. <laughs> um, so, I, so I'm completely aware that that feeling is happening you know, 99% of the time we get to the next stage where they realize, oh, you're just being friendly and then we're fine. <laughs> um, but I do think that people go through those stages and I think it's because the norm is we don't talk to strangers. And I think, I don't know, the, the norms are really shifty, slithery, fluid things, you know, like I think it's fine to go to in a park to go up to someone with a dog and talk to them. We talk to people with babies all the time. We'll talk to people, you know, at the shop, maybe um, we'll talk to the taxi driver, but not the bus driver. Um, you know, during the Olympics, um, I was in Vancouver during the winter Olympics. Everybody talked to each other. Um, people in London tell me that during the summer Olympics in London, all of a sudden everybody was talking to each other but as soon as the olympics were over everybody stopped so my point is just that these norms are pretty fluid and shifting um and so it can be hard to know what the norm is um but i think people are kind of open to breaking the norm they just don't want to be the one to do it <laughs> um so you know it the norm in the uk um is that london is not a friendly place and we do not speak to strangers but, you know, every time I've talked to someone, they have been happy to have a chat with me. And sometimes it's them who are starting the conversation because I think having developed these skills and this practice of talking to people, people can sense that I'm more open to it somehow. You know, I'm actually making eye contact with people. And, and so then sometimes that's all it takes for someone to be willing to talk to you. Mm -hmm. um, but like you said, I mean, different places have different norms as well. So there's sort of these situational norms, but then also, you know, maybe location-based norms. And in the UK, you know, people tell me all the time that, oh, people in Ireland, they're always talking or people up north, they talk more often. And I'm sure that's true. But, you know, I've had journalists from Ireland who've called me up and said, we want to talk to you because people here are nervous about talking to each other. And I said, but what are you talking about? I thought everybody talks in Ireland and they said, well, we do in these situations, but not those situations, you know, so they have their norms as well. So I think, you know, there are definitely norms. There's norms in different places. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I'm starting to do some, some work with uh, Gul Gunaydin and Amre Selchuk in Turkey. We're, we're starting a project um, to try and look at some of those sort of cross-cultural differences and what they might be mm -hmm. correlated with, but mm -hmm. uh, obviously a big piece of work. So, Yeah, for sure. And these are some uh, really great insights, I think, especially that the norms are often not as rigid as uh, we might think they are. Yeah, that's, I think, a great thing to remember. Uh, so I'm seeing that we're about to start running out of time here, um, although I could uh, ask you like a gazillion more questions probably at this point. Uh, but just can, can uh, I interrupt for a second? Because yes. I'm, I'm realizing that I haven't name dropped my amazing collaborators on a lot of this work. So <laughs> both of the studies that I've talked about, um, the scavenger hunt project, um, but also the mini meta analysis. We've been working really closely with Erica Boothby and Gus Cooney, um, who have been the best collaborators anybody could have. So just a little shout out to them. 
Awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much for doing that. So my last question to you, uh, just in the last couple of minutes is what are the next steps do you think in this work for you personally, as well as for the field more broadly? Um, well, one thing I've been starting to look at is just trying to understand how people's fears might be different depending on the exact situation, depending on who exactly their partner is. Um, so again, with Erica and Gus and also Jane Ebert, who's at Brandeis and my postdoc, Josh Morton, we've been looking at um, what we call our cross-generational study. Um, so we've just sort of wrapped up our data collection on that uh, on a study, <laughs> um, there'll have to be more. Um, but we, we've run a study where we recruited people who were 25 to 30 years old, and also people who are 65 to 70 years old. And they either get assigned to talk to someone from their own age group or someone from the opposite age group. Um, so we were trying to understand, you know, do people's fears change depending on who they're talking to? So if you're talking to someone who's like a totally different generation from you, is that scarier? You know, do, do you worry about different things um, or do you just worry more in general? Um, and then also, you know, are there some benefits that we might get um, from having certain kind of conversations versus others? So, you know, are there certain things, you know, you might think maybe we'd learn more from talking to someone who's quite different than we are, um, you know, more than we could from learning more than we could from someone that we're more similar to. Um, so that's one project that I've been working on. And then, um, you know, funny how these research things work because I've ended up looking at something quite similar to something that uh, Nick Epley has been looking at with some of his uh, team, uh, James Dungan and others. Um, I sort of started thinking, you know, okay, people are worried about talking to strangers and they have all these different fears. Um, but sometimes there are conversations with non-strangers that are also really scary and stress-inducing. Um, and one thing I was thinking about, um, kind of inspired by a, a Facebook post in a weird way, um, was just, you know, what if, what if you, someone you know, but don't know too well, like an acquaintance, a weak tie, um, was diagnosed with cancer? You know, that is terrifying to people because they think, what do I say? What do I not say? I'm going to say the wrong thing. I'm going to make things worse. Um, so I started wondering, you know, how similar are the fears in that situation um, to the fears that we have in talking to a stranger? Um, and so, yeah, Nick and his team have also been sort of looking at some social support aspects of, of talking to strangers. And, and so I think we're all kind of trying to figure out, you know, okay, we've looked at this one very, you know, specific thing, but does what we learn from that translate to other situations as well? Mm -hmm. So that that's something that, that I'm doing going forward. Mm -hmm. Wow, these are some awesome questions. And uh, I, I mean, so, so exciting and can't wait to see where this goes. Um, well, uh, in the meantime, thank you so much again for joining me. I learned so much from you uh, and just such fascinating research. And uh, I, I'm feeling inspired to go out and talk to strangers, ask them yes. what they're doing. Uh, <laughs> and hopefully many other people uh, will be will feel inspired as well. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. We would love to hear what you think about this episode or if you have any other suggestions for future guests or topics to cover. You can reach us at stanfordpsychpod at gmail.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at stanfordpsychpod. 
Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere so that more people can find us.